Next Chapter Podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. You know what's funny is I remember one time. What'd you do? You, had a, you used to have a mixtape? I mean, yeah, all the time, but the I remember years ago... This girl came over. She wanted me to take her virginity. And I was like, awesome. And I remember I put on the New York Undercover soundtrack from the TV show. They had a soundtrack that came out for New York Undercover. And I put it on. And I took her virginity to this. And then I remember I made her a copy of the CD before she left. What the fuck, dude? I said, I said, you might want to remember I said, that. Uh, here, here's a soundtrack to your virginity. Oh, my God. What a fucking douchebag. Just ignore the what? the few songs at the end, though. I just, I just threw those what on a from a different mix. shit I am. But she really, she asked for it. She was like, do you think I get a copy of that? LL Cool J is hot as hell. Battle anybody, I don't care. You Rock the Bells by LL Cool J, guys. It's from his 1985 debut album, Radio. It's also number 470 out of 500 on The 500 with Josh Adam Myers, a.k.a. the King of Fleece, the Fleece King, whichever way you want to say it. I'm royally in the fleece game. Guys, final show. It's coming up, everybody. May 31st, 2028. We're going to be having a huge block party, so make sure you're there. Make sure you're ready to party, because we are celebrating, finishing, going through Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the top 500 albums each week. May 31st, 2028. Put it in your calendars. This is what I want you to do. For Instagram stories this week, if you motherfuckers are out there and you're doing it and I know you love it, (laughs) take a screenshot of you going into your iCalendar and setting the date for May 31st, 2028, final episode of the 500 party. Let's make the party around, what are you thinking, like 4 p.m.? 4 p.m. is good? 4 p.m. There it is. Party's set. 4 p.m. It's going to be a long party, so you know what? Make it 6. Make it 6 p.m. 6 p.m. party, May 31st, 2028. Get ready for it. Make Instagram stories of it, dude. Take a screenshot of the of you making that iCal for May 31st, 2028, or just take a screenshot of how you're listening to the 500 and put us on your Instagram stories, guys. At Josh Adam Myers. Make sure you uh, put my handle on there and also put the hashtag... 500 podcast give me a 24 hour ad on your social media today in music i got two of them today because one of them is important and the other one i just want to i wanted you to hear because i read both 
1997, on May 29th, musician and singer Jeff Buckley drowns at 30. Jeff recently moved to Memphis, Tennessee to work on the follow-up album to his studio debut, which is so fucking good. So good. That album is one of my all-time favorites. Lover... What is it? Lover, I Have to Come Over? I'm all ass on a jewel on my shoulder. Oh, my God. It's just so good. But just an incredible musician. So that album means a lot to me. So on May 29th, while awaiting the arrival of his band from New York, he drowned during a spontaneous evening swim fully clothed in the Memphis River when he was caught in the wake of a passing boat. Dude, I am... It's just, I can't imagine, like, the music that he would have made because he was so, so talented. So, If you have never listened to Jeff Buckley, I'm pretty sure Grace is on this list, but pull out your phone and type in Jeff Buckley on Spotify and have it pull up, and then you'll fucking, you know, listen to one of the greatest albums ever. But this is the one that I wanted to talk about. In 1999... Skeletal remains were found by photographers looking for old car wrecks to shoot at the bottom of Decker Canyon near Malibu, California. Based on forensic evidence, the remains were Philip Kramer, former bassist with rock group Iron Butterfly, who had disappeared on his way home from work on February 12, 1995, his death was ruled as a probable suicide. That is fucking insane. Not that you just find a body when you're out there taking shots of old car wrecks. You can probably put them in your, you know, your, your what do they call it? Your fucking rep- repertoire of photography that you're probably doing. You know what I mean? And, and then you're like, well, look at this car. And then you pop something open. <laughs> and you just hear... Don't you know that I'm dead in heaven In a car in Malibu, baby Don't you know that it's probable suicide Oh, won't you come with me and I'll take your hand? Fuck it. Oh, won't you come with me and I'll let this live? You'd be like, we should close the door uh, and just let it be. Did you hear all the music coming out of there? I mean, there's no way. All right. A little bit about this record. This is the debut album by New York rapper LL Cool J, who was born James Todd Smith in Bayshore, Long Island, but raised in St. Albans, Queens. For the few who don't know who the fuck this is, it stands for Ladies Love Cool James. He made this album when he was 16 years old. What the fuck were you doing at 16? Trying to touch a girl's titty? Maybe for 30 seconds, if, if that's all you could get? I was doing LSD in the forest with Tassos and Ben and Dave Cullen. Watching the Dark Crystal 
high on LSD. That's what I was doing at 16. Occasionally. Not a lot. I was do- But I was doing, yeah, I was doing a lot of drugs. But all of this happened for a 16-year-old because of one mecca of hip-hop, and that is Def Jam. At the time, Def Jam was a fledging independent label created by NYU student Rick Rubin and promoter manager Russell Simmons, king of the Rush card, whose brother is Run from Run DMC. Now, we'll get a bit more into exactly how LL Cool J and Def Jam hooked up, made hip-hop history, and became widely successful a little bit later in the podcast, of course. But extensively utilizing the Roland T 808 drum machine and a handful of samples, radio is a musically minimalist masterpiece which saves the space for LL's dense wordplay, boasts, put-downs, and come-ons. He thinks he's the greatest, and to be honest with you, I've got a guest that is the greatest. We have on today one of the biggest comedians in the world. You may know him from his new series, The Indian Detective, NBC's Last Comic Standing, or for being the first comedian to have their own Netflix special, Notorious. My guest this week is the one and only Russell Peters. And Russell is a fucking hip-hop head. You cut him, and it spits a rhyme, dude. This dude is hip-hop. And it was funny because he was about to go out of town. So I caught him right before he left, literally, because I I needed him to be on this podcast. I went to his house at like 11 o'clock at night to record this. And it's a fantastic episode. Don't forget to listen to the end of the podcast where we spotlight a new artist that was directly influenced by LL Cool J. Also, rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to the 500. If you haven't subscribed, fucking do it. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Dude, follow me. If you haven't followed me, fucking do it. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. If you haven't emailed the podcast yet, fucking do it. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. If you haven't gone to the website yet, fucking do it. I love you guys so much, man. Uh, Well, you know what time it is. Nothing left to do but say, Here we go! With number 470 out of 500 with Radio by LL Cool J. Russell Peters, Russell Peters, Russell Peters, Russell Peters. <laughs> I thought that, out of everybody, I I'm a headlining <laughs> guy with two big eyes. <laughs> uh, I, let me ask you, how did you first hear LL Cool J? Like, because you're a fan, right? I'm a big fan, and I'm a friend of his. I tried getting him on here for you. I know you, we but, tried, uh, but it's funny. He, he replied and everything, and then. You want to do it? And then he stopped replying. I'm like, oh, come on, dude. Come he knew, on, Todd. He knew it was me. Uh, no, but so how did you become a fan of LL Cool J? Like, how did this, how did your, like, love of hip-hop and it just, tell me. So for me, I was a little break dancer. Uh, I started break dancing in, like, 82, 82, 83. And, uh, and then, and I loved the, uh, the music that went with it. Yeah. 
which was, you know, at the time, sorry for yawning. Uh, this is a great, it's going great so far. At the time, uh, <laughs> it was, we didn't know it was hip hop. We just knew that this was the dance that went with this music. Yeah. But then when the dancing kind of died down, I still wanted to hear the music. And, uh, you know, when you're at the forefront of things like that, when you get to be a part of something starting, like hip-hop was, uh, you really, in all fairness, hip-hop was already 10 years old at that time. How old are you at this time? I'm 13, 14. 13, 14. And this is in? In Toronto. In Toronto, okay. So, you know, I had um, I had uh, Run DMC's first album. I had Houdini's uh, Escape album. I had uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, uh, the Message album. I had all these records, and my brother used to DJ. And my brother used to play funk and disco. And from funk and disco started the hip-hop stuff because they would rap over those funk and disco records. Yeah. And you would hear things like the Wicca rap by the Evasions and stuff like that. I don't know that one. Uh, the Wicca rap is what it is. And they would kind of be copying the um, funk and for Jamaica. Okay. Uh, but anyway, it all started from that. And then... Uh, 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 we didn't know it was called hip hop. We didn't know it was called rap. We knew that the guy was rapping, but we didn't know it was called rap. So, so, but I mean, is this is the thing I want to know? Is like hip hop big in Toronto? I mean, is it? Yeah, because it's, we're it's, attached to New York. How Just, Toronto and Buffalo, New York State, are attached to each other. Sure. Okay. So Ontario and New York State were neighbors. So we would get all of Buffalo, New York news and weather and all the channels out of Buffalo, New York. And then via that, we would get everything from New York City. You'd get in the radio stations, yeah. And so what was the station that broke you? Back then, it was WBLK, 93.7, K94 <laughs> FM. All right, y'all. We're, it's yeah, definitely a guy Buffalo. that sounded like me. Wolfman Jack? Yeah, everybody. It's Buffalo. It's negative 12 degrees, y'all. But, <laughs> Here comes another track from Houdini. <laughs> no, that's, see, that's the thing. They were playing like funk and disco and soul and stuff like that. I keep trying to, what, what, what the last dance. No, it would be stuff like uh, One Way and stuff like that. One Way. No, no, the group. Can we live and die? The, the group, the group, one way. Uh, okay, out of I Ohio. That, I don't think I was singing the right song. Yeah, no, you were singing a song <laughs> called "One Way." It was that, like just love. It was just once. Just once. That, yeah. just, once. <laughs> just once. I wish you'd get the song fucking right. <laughs> so, so you're listening to this as a 13 year old. Is there a big group? Well, no. Here's the thing. Okay, now, there's this college station in Toronto called CKLN 88.1, out of Ryerson College in, in in Toronto, or now it's Ryerson University. Back then it was college. Yeah. Um, and where I lived in the suburbs, it didn't have the reach to get there. Somehow, some way, somebody figured out that if you disconnected the cable from the TV and taped it to the antenna on your boombox and you set your station to 92-something, you would be able to pick up the radio from Ryerson. Oh, that was great. So every Saturday from 1 to 4, there was the Fantastic Voyage program hosted by Ron Nelson and and he would play all the newest hip hop, and he wasn't particularly a good DJ at all. But he had all the records, and he was and he had all the connections, and he was everything. He was kind of the voice of my generation. So uh, we would just literally record the radio every Saturday from one to four, and we would just play these cassettes all week till the next week until we record something else. And it just became an immediate like it, oh like, yeah, it hits your soul immediately. It was like, right just, away. It was like oh my god, what is this? It's amazing because there's nothing like this before so yeah. now i'm at the forefront of something and i love being the first at things and i think that's resonated into my uh adult life as well sure. you know 
So I was at the forefront of this rap music. I was at the forefront of house music. You know, all these new genres that were starting. I was there when they started. It's a really cool feeling to look back and go, wow, I was right there when that was happening. Yeah. So, so like, so your love of hip hop was instantaneous. So when did LL make his way into your life? LL made his way. And I think his first, um, I think his first record was I need a beat. That was the 12 inch. Yeah. That was his first that, 12 inch that he made when he was 16 years old. Yes. Uh, in, his, in his grandmother's basement or something. Not to cut you off, but I love this guy's story. Like he started in his, in his grandparents' basement. Uh, was enamored with music so much that he would record his demos on equipment his grandfather bought him and then go to stores looking through all the top rap record labels searching for their addresses. He found Def Jams. Yep, from Tila Rock record. Yep, from the Tila Rock record. And or he was went, it a Jazzy J record? No, it was here. I have it written down. It was it's songs yours. called It's Yours by Tila Rock and, and off of a Debt Jam, Debt Jam, Def Jam Party Time label. He's 16, he, so he's 16 years old. He finds Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin fucks with him. Uh, Ad Rock fucks with him. Yep. And then Russell Simmons doesn't fuck with him because he thinks that he sounds too much like that dude you just said, Tila Rock. Tila Rock? Yeah, so he was like, no. no. So nothing alike. Well, that's what he says, dude. That's what I got off of the OK Player magazine d- breaking down the cool J's Do you life. want it? Yeah, he said, if no. you had it, would you flaunt it? He said, Hell he said, yeah. He said he, he said he reminds me of Grandmaster Kaz and Tila Rock. Wow, and, and what's, nothing's wrong with either of them. And then they created uh, "I Need a Beat," which sold over a hundred thousand units. I and had then, two copies of that record. Did you have two copies had, of it? Had I mean, it did was, you have? Did you have Cush Groove as well? Crush Groove, Crush Groove. Uh, the uh, movie, the album, the movie cut? that because that's also. I, what I broke saw me. the movie in the theater, Crush Groove, and I remember LL in the movie, and I go, "Oh shit, that guy's cool as fuck." He came in like he didn't care. Yeah, dude, he's he's like he's dude, he's fucking LL Cool J. Ladies love him so. His his story is just incredible. I never knew any of this stuff. I didn't know he was that hungry. So let's let's do this. Our album is number four seventy out of five hundred. It's the debut studio album, Radio by LL Cool J, released November eighteenth, nineteen eighty five. Produced by Rick Rubin and Jazzy J. So tell me about your first experience with this record. Um, I just I just dug it. I was like, yo, this is different than everything I've heard so far. I didn't particularly love the song. Yeah. I need a beat. And what bothered me was there was a, a remix of it that was not really a remix. Where they just literally the DJ went, I, 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 chick, chick, I, 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 chick, chick, I need a beat. And I'm like, that's not a fucking remix. That's a guy fucking around on the turntable. And I was so mad at that remix. I was like, nobody's ever going to play this version because it's not a real version. All you need is the original and you can do that yourself. And at this time, I'd already started DJing. Yeah. I started DJing in 85. So I had already had this record. And the record to have at that time uh, from LL was um, Rock the Bells. That's probably my favorite song on this record. And there's two versions of it. There's a seven-minute version, and then there's the four-minute version. No. That's I Need a Beat. Never mind. You're getting me confused. Rock the Bells had an original version. With the bells. That was the original. And then the re- the remix, that more, the one that became the version, yeah. was uh, LL Cool J is hot as <laughs> And that became the record that every single DJ had to know how to cut up. You had to know how to cut up Rock the Bells or you weren't worth shit. 
Well, you weren't DJing at the time, were I you? Sure was. You were DJing at, I was at, DJing at 13, at the time. 14 years old. I, well, now was I was already 15. You were 15. Yeah, okay. I was already 15 now. So, so like now listening to the record, like how does it how does it resonate with you now? Oh, I get total, um, you know, photographic memories of what I was doing at that time and where I was. I can picture the smells and the sounds of everything. It's pretty wild when I do. Like I listen to Rock the Bells radio all the time right yeah. now. And uh, they always play Dear Yvette on there. And they play I Can't Live Without My Radio. And they play a lot of the album cuts, I Can Give You More. That was a song that was, I really liked that song for some reason. No, well, I, it's this, here's the thing. is I, I, The only LL Cool J that I knew really was the Mama Said Knock You Out uh, doing it. That was 89. And then I knew the, and then I, the one I really knew was, Come and get your heads from, come and get your heads from. Yeah, but you're much younger than I. I, I I'm not not much. I'm I'm 39, and you so are I'm 10 years older. You're 10 years older than me. Okay, so so listening to this record now, like I, I didn't know what I was really going to be getting, but I knew it was going to be like the earliest form of hip hop because this is basically at the forefront of when hip hop became national music, right? Actually, worldly music. It was very much at the forefront. This was before the Beasties broke out. Yeah. This is before Run DMC broke out. I mean, Run DMC was already a big name as far as um, the first album. And then I think, and then King of Rock came out, which was also a decently large album for them. But this was right before Raising Hell came out, which was the album that broke them. Uh, Raising Hell. That's, that was the first That was the that one was the that was the first album my parents ever bought me. Right. Was Raising Hell uh, by Run DMC. But basically, for me, I never heard anything besides Mama Said Knock You Out doing it. And there's like a few other songs. And so, from what, to be honest, from what I really only know about LL Cool J is that he says he's the greatest rapper alive. You know what? What? It's, he's, not, he's not wrong. He really is. You know, he, let me liken it to you in today's terms. Please. LL Cool J was what Drake is today, but... But but uh, on a different level, on a more real hip hop level, it was that big. Uh, well, here's the thing: every uh, you look at Drake and you look at LL, chicks love both of them. Um, guys can't stand the, to look at them, and I always talk shit about them. But guys love the music too. Yeah, and other rappers would always take shots at both of them, and they would always lose. It's the same with Drake and LL. It's the same. It's a very similar scenario. So was this the, so LL Cool J when this came out? This is one of the this is like one of the biggest artists. Well, out at that at time, time. We, you know, we weren't sure what was going to happen after the radio album. What do you mean with hip hop in general? No, with with LL, we were like, okay, that was a good album. It was a really great album. And then you know everybody had the sophomore flop usually. Yeah, most artists do. Um, mind you, in the eighties, was kind of lucky. I mean, Run DMC followed up the Run DMC album with King of Rock, and then followed it up with Raising Hell, and then they had their fourth album was a little weak sauce, but. The first three, killer. Then LL follows up radio with Bigger and Deffer, and that was an amazing album. Which I listened to on the way here because I wanted to see the evolution <laughs> from this. Because this, what I got from this, I was just expecting more on the beat sides. This was about as minimalistic. What are you talking as, about, from radio? Well, just from radio. Well, yeah, yeah. because you got to understand it was a time where the beats were very minimalistic. People were just learning how to work drum machines. So it was all, and it was almost that Def Jam sound was that beat. You listen to Run DMC stuff, it had that same, and 
But just yeah. even like, not even just the beats. It was just like the idea that he's calling him the greatest himself the greatest rapper of all. He time. wasn't at that time. And, yet. I know because the rhymes. That's the shit that like how white people rap now. When oh, like yeah. when they're doing like a company party, they're like, "All right, guys, Tina's retiring." Well, we are here to say to you, oh, yeah. we're going to miss you. Boo, hoo, hoo. And right. that, it's very, like, bare bones. And I just, as but I've LL seen the... Had, ev- see, LL had already gone past that way of doing it. You know, he had songs that were similar to that, you know, cadence. But when he would do stuff like <coughs> Dear Yvette. Oh, my God. <coughs> he was telling stories. No, I understand that he's telling stories. Listen, I'm not putting this down at all. And, like, and Rock I, the Bells was killer. Rock the Bells is a great song. Like, let's dive into the record, okay? So it opens with I Can't Live Without My Radio. Love that record. Uh, Peter, play minute three, second 50. I love the intense sounds of the drums in this part. The song in itself, though, is pretty repetitive, but it is good. Um, along with, with Ruben and his DJ cut creator, LL used the 808 drum machine to form the basis for this track, mixing a guitar scratch sample from the ACDC song Flick the Switch and some synth from the song Rockin' in My Pocket by Sharon. Cerrone. Cerrone. Uh, beats from the Trouble Funk song Saturday Night in the Park were also sampled on this track. And this song actually made it up to 15 on the Billboard. And a very important part of this record, I Can't Live Without My Radio, is uh, the part where it says, Cut Creator, rock the beat with your hands. That rock the beat right there became a DJ staple to scratch with. Oh, really? Yes. So people have just cut that out, and that's be, been an rock, Im- rock, 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 the, 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 the beat, 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 your hand, 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 and then they would like they break it down, then the and they would and people would cut. So this, all of that yeah. Back so that's so not just being that this is the first song on his album. This is also a huge part of hip hop history. It's just a very important part. It's a very important song for DJs. See, LL's music was really instrumental for DJs because his voice was so had that pitch, that tone, that that sound that was perfect for cutting and scratching. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Well, the boombox 
was a big part of the 80s hip-hop scene. And yes. This is the lead single from this record, written by LL and Rick Rubin. It's talking about how he can't live without his radio. What is something that you can't live without? My turntables. Really? Really. You do that every day? Not every day, but I like to know that they're there. Just out of everything that you owe, knowing that the turntables are nice I mean, and if safe? Turn, honestly, if I, like, say, let's say I go three weeks without touching them. If they weren't here, I would have been going crazy. Really? Yeah, like where the fuck are they? I need to. I, I, well, I saw the I saw the the smile that suddenly hit your face when you were like, "Yo, man, check this out!" And then you put it down, and it's just like because it's so much fun. It's like I have my guitar laying around. It's exactly. And I can pick it up, and like we can just dick around. All right, so so obviously playing music has been something really important to you. When did you get your first real boombox? Um, I mean, I got my first boombox. So I must have been in seventh or eighth grade, but it wasn't a really. I mean, to me, it was a real one at the time. I think it was a. Uh, Sanyo was the brand. Sanyo's great. <laughs> I had a Sanyo. It's Sanyo Boombox. That was their uh, their catchphrase. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, I remember playing. I had my Sanyo, and I thought I was the shit with that thing. And my brother in 1979 got a JVC RCM 70, and that was a killer boombox right there. I had a, uh, my dad bought me a little tape player, like literally the same kind of tape recording. The one that with the handle that pulls out? The one out. that handled the same shit that brought down Nixon, dude. That was yeah. my first like real boombox. I would listen to like Iron Maiden, Guns N' Roses. I would turn it up as loud as it could. Oh my God. And now I have Sonos speakers everywhere, which That's I assume hilarious. you have something like that as well. You probably um, have music in every I ha- room. I have it all built into the roof. I can just play it off the phone. Yeah, that's what I figured. As part of this song was in the film Crush Groove, which was based on the rise of Def Jam and featured many up-and-coming hip-hop artists like Run DMC and the Fat Boys, LL, as we talked about, was seen in an audition scene and has one line, and it's actually just one word. What does he say? Do you know? He says, box. Oh, yeah, yeah, when he walks in. So I've actually read. Did that you, you see the movie? I haven't seen it, but I'm gonna it, watch it. It's literally like uh, Sheila E's in the movie, and Run DMC's in the movie, Curtis Blow's in the movie. It's everybody, and they had um, Blair Underwood playing Russell Simmons. Yep, <laughs> that's what I read. But I've also read that you took up boxing because you were bullied in school. I sure was buddy. about your ethnicity. Yeah. It was how very- how bad did that get, and and how serious did you take boxing after that? Uh, I was bullied a lot. Like the in Canada, growing up in the seventies and eighties, the worst, lowest form of human being you could have been was an Indian person. Why did they have like beef? Just, I don't know. Well, clearly they didn't have beef. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> um, no, I don't know what it was. Dude. It was this really. It was this trickle down racism from England that had come over to Canada, and um, it was literally they really didn't. It was like indiscriminate discrimination. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you were brown. They didn't give a fuck. It was like, fuck you, Packy. And it wasn't like they would take into consideration that you were a child. And they didn't take into consideration that they were an adult. Yeah. It was literally like like when I, you know, watch the civil rights things. And people go, you don't know what it was like. I'm like, yeah, actually, I do know what the fuck it was like because I dealt with the exact same thing. Um, Being a five-year-old boy on a bicycle riding around my neighborhood. And there was a guy with an older white man watering his lawn. And I... It was a stop sign in front of his house. And I don't know, I felt like following the rules of the road. So I stopped at the stop sign and he was watering his lawn. And I looked at him and said, hi. And he fucking sprayed me with his hose and said, get the fuck out of here, Packy. How old were you? Five. He Jesus was a grown Christ. man with a with with wife and two kids. Jesus, man. 
So yeah. how did so so like did something happen that made you take up boxing? Obviously well, yeah, no, that, I would get yes, that, but I mean stuff like that. But, you would get bullied wherever you went. People would spit on you. They would kick you, punch you, slap you, scratch you, whatever. Yeah, they'd verbally abuse you, physically abuse you. They would. It got to the point where I was in high school and I I, I, I left. I, I went to this one high school for two years and I hated it. I left every day miserable, depressed, crying a lot, and then I got kicked out of that high school because my grades were so bad. And when I went to the other school, which was considered a much more tough school, uh, like a lot, like a lot of tough kids went to that school because it was a kind of a bad school. Yeah. Um, I immediately said, "I'm not gonna let that happen to me here." And my dad said, "Go learn how to box." And one of my friends that I grew up with was a uh, boxer, and he was a really good boxer. So my dad said, "Go with Willie. Go learn how to fight." And my dad used to box in India, so I went with Willie to learn how to box, and I was terrible at the first. At first, <laughs> horrible. It took me a long time to get it. Yeah. But once I got it, I was like, "Oh, this is this is it. That's all you had to do." Yeah, just so. punch the bully in the face. <laughs> I didn't know it was that simple. You just learn how to stand up to bullies, and you realize that the bullies weren't shit. Did you know? Did Did you get to use that? That uh, I used it a training? little bit. I used it a little what bit. What was yeah. the first time you being able to use it, and how'd that go down? Um, I think I was in. It was at the the rough school, and every time I would walk down the hall, there was one kid that used to he used to call me a faggot every time he'd see me. It's a I, normal thing you call. How old are you? I was uh, sixteen. <laughs> it's a normal thing sixteen-year-olds say. I'd walk down the hall and go, "Hey, faggot!" And I'm like, "Shut the f- f- who the fuck are you talking to?" And I was like, "Stop it! Stop telling me that!" And every time I'd see him, "Hey, faggot!" And then I was going to the bathroom one time in, in class, in between classes, like class was in. And I went yeah. down the hall, and it was just me and him in the hallway. And he goes, "Hey, faggot!" And as soon as he said it, I, I threw him against the locker and went, pop, and I punched him right in his ribs, and I broke his ribs. Really? And all he heard was. And he collapsed. <laughs> and then... Uh, he never called you that again. Never called me that again. <laughs> what, did he, what did he call you after that? No, then the principal called me down after that. <laughs> yeah. The principal called me down. Then I got into another fight later on that, in that year, and I, this guy was making fun of me because my girlfriend in high school broke up with me, and I was kind of bummed about it. And I remember he was a bigger guy, and I grabbed him by his shirt. And I remember when I grabbed him by his shirt, I heard his shirt rip. And in my head, I went... Holy shit! This guy's gonna kick your ass because yeah, he just ripped his shirt. He just fucked up his Polo Ella shirt. No, nobody had that kind of money. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I, I, as soon as I did it, I don't know where I got the strength from. But I lifted him up and I threw him, and his head hit the wall, and his leg hit the fucking uh, stairwell. And he was like, oh, "Look at your problem!" And I was like, "That's right, don't mess with me." And I walked up the <laughs> stairs, going, "Holy shit! Did I just dodge a bullet?" <laughs> I never, never once back then was I like, man, I'm a badass. I was like, well, how did I get through that? I think any fight I got in high school, I always felt like I just survived it. Uh, even if I didn't, like, I remember there were a lot of just ones where, you know, we start talking shit and then we start circling each other. And it was just my hope that somebody would just stop us. Like a teacher would run out before yeah. we actually threw any punches. Um, do you still box today? Uh, no, I do jujitsu now. I've been jujitsu three years now. How... Uh, how have you ever had to use that? I have jujitsu. Yeah. Wait, isn't there a video of you like rescuing somebody at like yeah, a I jewelry stopped, store? Yeah, it was in February of this year. Wait, tell me about it. What I, was, <laughs> I was at my friend's jewelry store in New York City, and um, it was like a couple of days before Valentine's Day, so I was in there looking at stuff for my girlfriend. Yeah, and uh, I was standing just wasting time. I was kind of hanging out, and I was standing near the door looking at some stuff, and this guy was sitting down to my right looking at like this some $300,000 ring and he gets up and he decides he wants to bolt out the store but the door's right behind me and when he gets up they immediately lock all the doors 
So he's not going anywhere now. So now he's stuck. Yeah. yeah he goes to the door and he, he checks and he's locked in. Now I just turn around. He's literally standing like right shoulder to shoulder with me. And I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, I'm thinking to myself, what the hell are you going to do now? You're literally locked in this store and now you look like an idiot. And I'm like, it's not, it's my friend's store. So I, I can't get involved too much because it's not my store. It's not, I don't know what your protocol is in this situation, yes. right? I go, do they have guns? I don't know what's going to happen. So I'm like, I'm just looking at him. And then I, I'm like, oh, oh, in my head, I'm like, what the fuck's going to happen? And then my friend's father goes, hey, give me back the fucking ring. And he goes to get the ring, and the guy takes a swing at my friend's father. And that's when I jumped in. I'm like, no, nah, you got to take a swing at the old man, buddy. So what did you do? You just I did, went, you I went to go, in a I went to get a, in a chokehold, but the, one of the other guys from the store grabbed him and tried to pull him down. But the other guys didn't know what they were doing. And I'm like, if they had not grabbed him, I would just put him in a chokehold. It would have been over much quicker. Put him in a goddamn tiger claw. I, I, I was going to put him in a rear naked choke. And then uh, you put him in a but bare- I had a long sleeve you, shirt. Did you say you were going to put him in a bare naked ladies? Re- what re- is it? In a uh, rear naked choke. <laughs> you have to, that's where you choke him and you go, it's been one week since you looked at me. <laughs> and then I tell him, Enid, we never knew each other. Um, so then we tussle, tussle, and then I get his arm and his wrist and I lock it up. And as soon as I lock his arm in an arm bar, he goes, okay. Because <laughs> I had it in. It was like, tap. And he was like, Okay. Uh, I could have broken it in half if I had wanted to. Did they give you a discount after that? They kind of did, yeah. Fuck yeah, dude. All right, You Can't Dance is the next song on this record. This uh, was my least, one of my least favorite songs on this I record. I found it to be hilarious. It, I, it, I, I think it was a joke song, to be is, honest with you. This is a silly diss track about those that are really, really bad at dancing. Uh, some sample lyrics. Hey, man, I've seen you. Think you're rocking it on the floor. You look like a moron. Who lets you in the door? To put the you question... Can't dance. Yeah, dude. To put the Anybody question... Tell you that? To put the question bluntly, maybe your feet's deformed. They should s- slap you in the teeth when you put your dancing shoes on. You can't dance. Best part about the song, Russell, is the breakbeat that they play in the chorus. Peter, play the chorus so we can hear the breakbeat. So you can dance. You said I you, used to I, be able to dance. Right, so you, I think those days are long behind tell me, me. Tell me about like your your foray into break dancing. Uh, for me, it was I saw Flashdance and I saw a Rocksteady crew doing a windmill with. She's them. a minor sun girl on a Saturday night. Do you remember? Do you remember there was a scene? No, I, I did. I barely. I was like four, dude, when that came out. Oh yeah, it was Flashdance like, didn't resonate with me. No. I get it because she's very sexy. But it wasn't my kind of thing. There was a scene where she's walking through the street and the New York City Breakers, I, it was, I think Rock City Crew and or New York City Breakers were breakdancing in front of her. I go, what the fuck is that? And how can I do that? How and good I, were you? I wasn't. Could you, do the, could you do the head spin thing? No, I never did head spins. I was more of a, I, I, I was a stand-up guy and I did like a bit of a shuffle, a backspin windmill. 
Um, but I got my windmill down after breakdancing had kind of died, and I was like, fuck, what am I going to do with this? It's never died. I used to go to raves, and people would get into breakdancing. Yeah, place. but it kind of made a revival in the 90s. But like in 85, you were kind of a dick if you were still doing it. Really? Oh, I was like, man. come on, I still love this Dude, thing. I, I got the cardboard down. I'm, come on. <laughs> yeah, Watch but I was break. still secretly practicing in my basement. It's you know? great. I always got so impressed by people that could breakdance. Do you have any video of you doing it? No, I have a <sighs> picture of me. I won a break. I won a couple of breakdancing competitions back in the day. This is all in Toronto. Yeah. Hey, so we got another popping locker over here. And uh, <laughs> and then I got paid to dance a couple of times. All right. Well, the song features a sample of Apache by the incredible Bongo Band, which bang, is unofficially bang. known as a hip hop anthem due to its appearance on so many songs. And speaking of extensive hip hop credentials, uh, you are actually the producer of the incredibly informative Netflix documentary series, Hip Hop Evolution. I'm the executive producer. And you even won a Peabody Award. And an Emmy. International, though. It's international. It's I got it written. Is it international? <laughs> it international I don't give a shit. I've got Emmy an Emmy, Award. buddy. It's in the other room. <laughs> and a Peabody. How did that become a passion project for you? And, like, and how did that get started? A buddy of mine in Toronto named Darby Wheeler, a good friend of mine, he, he's a dorky white guy. He's going to hate me for calling him a dork. I'm not a fucking dorky white guy. All white people are dorky. <laughs> um, but he hit me up. He was like, hey, I want to do a documentary about hip hop. And I go, okay. And he goes, but I really want it to be extensive. And I want it to be real. And I want to get all the information. I go, well, as a hip hop fan, I would like to be a part of that. Because I've seen too many documentaries that were fluff pieces that were shit that didn't really cover anything. He goes, exactly. And that's why I want to do it. I said, I'm in. And then I have a lot of relationships with people who you cannot get interviews with. And I got him interviews with. Well, him. I remember. I remember one of my favorite memories of of knowing you was the goddamn comedy jam in Montreal, Montreal, where first the night before you threw your own Russell Peters party of like Naughty by Nature. Uh, help me out because I know it, it was, was <coughs> Melly Naughty Mel. by Nature, Melly Mel, um, uh, Nice and Smooth, uh, Lisa Lisa and the cult, not the culture. I'm just Lisa Lisa. Uh huh. Um. Uh, positive K. Which uh, one's Positive K? I can't uh, live without my yo-yo. No, no Positive <laughs> K yo-yo. is uh, uh, what your man got to do with me? Oh, I, I got, got a man. man. I'm not trying to hear that. See? Yeah, you threw like a whole party. It was called the mixtape live. You threw a whole party. Yes, it was. And I remember I see it on my from my hotel room. There were so many people there. Probably there were like, like twenty thousand people. There was like twenty thousand people. Also, now while we're talking about hip hop evolving. What do you think about the state of new hip hop and trap now? Right now, yeah, I, I don't think about it at all. It, here's the problem: <clears throat> hip hop has rap music has separated itself from hip hop now, and if you are a rapper, doesn't necessarily mean you are a hip hop person. Um, what I'm saying is, a lot of these young kids don't know anything about what happened before them. Because th- here's the yeah. problem. That's I, my Michael Rapport on, and he said the same thing: is that they don't. You could ask him who Wu Tang is, and they'd be like, "Huh?" Yeah, they literally don't know, and they don't care. They're a very disrespectful generation. Um, you know, it doesn't mean you need to like what we did, but you need to know it and and respect it. Because without what we did, you don't have what you do. Yeah, and and I also feel like the minute it left New York, I didn't really want to hear much about it anymore. When, when, it, you, when, it, when it started to go south, literally south, I was like, I don't know. This doesn't resonate really, with me. Really? So you never got into Outkast? No. 
I like Outkast. Don't get me wrong. Because I still consider that's that's still hip hop, though. Oh yeah, I mean, no, no, no. Here's the like, thing. Here, here's the thing. It, there was a lot of artists from the South who kept it hip hop, and from all over the place that kept it hip hop. But there was a deterioration happening, and much like back in the day, if you were to uh, copy a cassette for somebody, if you were to copy a cassette from a copied cassette, it would be a worse generation copy than it was before that yeah until eventually it would fade out to nothing and that's basically what we've done now we've copied the master cassette from other cassettes to the point where it doesn't it, it's not clear anymore yeah that's a good way to put it, it it's it doesn't really it, it, it's it doesn't from what well, it was the idea but it's not, listen the, the idea of still making hip-hop beats i still believe in that and i still think that exists because like some of the beats are just as good. The, listening to Rick Rubin's production and then listening to like you know Mike Will made it or some dude that I used to play at the strip club. Like I could appreciate the beat, but there was an art form with the MC. The <clears> idea a, that they were that you know, and I mean you know it because you. It you, was about being able to say something. Yes, oh. and and they don't say anything. They anymore. don't say anything. Any. Have you seen? There's a video on on World Star and all these different places of this new MC named Haisha Boy. And he's like, he's doing a freestyle rap. Oh, and he just does his ad libs. He's just like, <laughs> I saw that. You make me flee. I mean, and he was like, I'm just going to do my ad libs. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's literally that. what he's doing. And here's the funniest thing is that, like, it's a lot of people are, are shitting on it, and then a lot of people love it. It's, I'm mean, to be honest with you, I probably watched it over 100 times. I kind of do love it now, but I still Well, it's kind of like that guy in England who was doing that. Remember that one? It was like quick maths. Bah, 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 top, top. He was doing that before this kid was doing it. Yeah, know? but this guy's freestyle. I've never heard anything like it. I mean, yeah, I, it's I, terrible. I, well, my, as, as a hip hop purist, I'm insulted and hurt. Listen, by it. I don't I don't know if I really consider myself a purist, but I do. I dude, I got into hip hop. Uh, first, it was like Snoop Doggy Dog and then it became Tribe Called Quest and Public Enemy. Well, Public Enemy before all that. But then it evolved where it really became, you know, I started, you know, like uh, fucking like we were talking about J5 earlier and Wu-Tang Clan was one of the biggest obsessions of my life. And I never was a huge Biggie fan or what? Tupac fan. I just, dude, I just, I was a Wu-Tang fan. I, I was love Wu-Tang, but, but Biggie, I was, Biggie was my number I one. felt that you couldn't listen to anything but Wu-Tang. Have you, you watched like the Wu-Tang. Wu-Tang documentary on Showtime? No, but I'm going to watch it yeah. this weekend. Because I'm so excited. And then my, my other appreciation for hip-hop came. Well, not per appreciation, but really where it was forced into my life was when I DJed at the strip club. Right. So I was getting the beginning of that, like, mumble rap. I was getting the beginning of that fucking, you know, the, like, it's just, it's, it's I always call it, like, a strip-hop. It was just, it was music that was made to well, that's just exactly throw, what it was. And- to throw dollars on girls. And that was fine as far as it stayed there. But then it became somehow became mainstream. And I'm like, no, this is not this was never good. This yeah. was never good. And it and, you know, I, I, I've often said this, but in 1997, when Universal Music gave Cash Money Millionaires a 30 million dollar deal at that very moment in 1997, at 27 years old, I said, this is white America paying black America to dumb it down. And it, I said, all you got to do now is be dumber than those guys. And that's where we're at now. You 20, think, you 22 this, years later, it, we are in a place where it is it it's completely idi- ignorant. It's, it, it's idiocracy in hip-hop. It's, it's Mike Judge's movie come to life. So you honestly think that 
when Cash Money came out, that was the dumbing down of of no. What? When they got a thirty million dollar deal, it was fine that Cash Money was making money and and doing it out of their car and however they were doing grassroots style. But when when Universal Music went, here's thirty million dollars. I was like, what the fuck? Are you do- what are you doing? These are not the guys. These are not the guys to do this with. At the time, it was '97. We had DMX. We had we had Capone and Noriega. We had yeah. You know, we had Wu Tang. We had all these great artists. Great artists. And you're just throwing money at these fuck like the fuck out of here. What knew, are you doing? They knew that sound. That was the beginning. That was the beginning no. of what we have now. Yeah, but that's exactly what I'm saying. They fucked us. Yeah. They they threw a bunch of money at a bunch of dumb guys. I, I say dumb in a respectful I no, way. I, I understand. It's just not the hip hop. Like it's like Michael Rapport said. I keep bringing him up because he was so passionate about it. It was just like he likes his hip hop served raw. Yeah, and I, I, I like my hip hop from people who love hip hop. Yeah, and and you know th- these were guys that were making their version of hip hop from New Orleans, which was great for New Orleans. Still speaking their truth, though. Still speaking their truth, and I had no problem with that. It wasn't for me. Wasn't for me, but. When they threw thirty million at them and not like artists that really deserved thirty million dollars, sure. I was like, something is fucking wrong here. Some white man has figured out a way. I know how to. I know how to make the next generation of black people dumb, and that's exactly what the fuck he did. Do you think it's going to implode? It has to implode. There's no way anybody can tolerate this much stupidity for this long. Yeah. It, it it gets to a fever pitch where you're like, all right, enough. I need I, my brain is going numb. Yeah, it's so bad. It's so bad. All right. Like Eminem's album last year, Kamikaze, fucking incredible album. An amazing album. Got no airplay anywhere. Got no love. But to me, one of the best hip hop albums I've heard in at least the past 15 years. Yeah. All right. Dear Yvette. Dear uh, Yvette. <laughs> this chorus is horrible. Peter, play it. Yeah. Oh my god. All right. It was not a good chorus. It's definitely it's one of the worst choruses of all <laughs> but time. But the lyrics made me laugh. Yes. So it's hysterical. This rap is about LL writing a letter to a female named Yvette. She's telling he's telling her that she needs to change her ways and not be so sexually active as it's destroying her reputation as a woman. These are my favorite lyrics. I don't really know if it's I don't really know if the story is so. I can neither ask Curly or Larry, Larry or Mo or Earl Shabazz Lou Mookie or Joe like Santa Claus said you're, you're a, a ho, ho ho ho. That was dope. It's the beginning of slut shaming. But here here's an interesting thing about this song you may not know. Go ahead. A record came out right after that by a girl named Yvette Money. And it was a diss track back to LL. Wait, so was he writing this about her? No, but here's what here's what you got to know before that. Um, it was Roxanne, Roxanne. And then there was uh, a song um, by the real Roxanne and then Roxanne Shantae, which spawned all these 
diss tracks that were back and forth between men and women. So, Wait, so was the police's song Roxanne a diss no, track? No, 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 no. From UTFO. <laughs> it sounds like a diss track. The Untouchable Force Organization. Okay. <laughs> UTFO wrote a song called Roxanne, Roxanne. Then there was a real Roxanne. And then Roxanne Shantae. And they all came back. And then there was Sparky D. And then there was Roxanne's Revenge. It started this whole movement in 84. And then cut to... Um, LL does Dear Yvette And then this girl named Yvette Money Does a record coming back at LL And it was funny because Growing up in Toronto A lot of the black Most of the black community is West Indian if And, and a lot of Jamaicans So Yvette Money I was obviously Jamaican Because the start of a record was um, Who the fuck are you? This little blood clot boy I want come tell me about And I'm like oh shit And then she did a song Yvette, Yvette's Revenge and it all started with this. Yeah. Good for good for LL. You should Starting, find... Uh, what's the guy's first, name? Peter? A Peter, yeah. Peter, Peter you need play. to find Yvette, Yvette's Revenge. Peter, Yvette Money. play a little bit of Yvette's Revenge real quick. I really don't know how to shit me again, but to clarify the matter, I will goddamn first, not then. I must say this, LL Cool J, you know where to kiss. It's seen you have a habit of spray and lies, but this time you're in for a brick surprise. You said I was a hoe? All right, well, like we said, this is about a promiscuous girl. Now, have you ever had to deal with someone, someone else's, or even your own promiscuity to ruining a relationship? Um, I'm living proof of this, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> you just met my son? <laughs> I, uh, I've been on the straight and narrow, so I, uh, uh, it's easier for me to talk about it. It's, also easy for, it's actually a lot easier while you're in a relationship to be on the straight and narrow. Yeah. Um, I don't have to like, you know, worry about, oh shit, did I, have I, would I, uh, who's that person? You know what I mean? I'm, it's, it's a lot easier as far as your nerves go. Yeah. Um, but we don't get enough credit for all the vagina we refuse. Like to them, to a woman, cause you know, dicks being thrown at them from the day they're fucking able to catch dick. Yeah. um, 15, 16 years old. Yeah, like it's just, it's just literally, there's dicks all around. And, uh, um, but we don't get, I don't get, we don't get any credit for like being like, you should have seen the one that was just hitting me up that I didn't do or didn't engage or didn't do anything about. But you can't do that because, like, well, who the fuck is that bitch? And then it becomes another problem. You're like, no, no, I'm just trying to, we're trying to get a pat on the back for doing the right thing. It, but, it's, yeah, but it's, you it's, can't really get the pat on the back for that because, I mean, that'd be dope if you, do- that, that would be dope if you could. Honey, do you understand? Like, 10 women tried to fuck me yeah, tonight, like there was and this, I'm here with you. You seen how hot the chick was, you know? Uh, are you the kind of person who can tell somebody, frankly, how you're feeling, though, in a relationship? I, no, I'm not. I'm a comic. I say it on stage quite easily. In, in personal, you know, private time, I, am, I try, but I'm not good at articulating certain emotions or feelings or or. I may say it too bluntly or I may say it in a joking tone. So I don't know. I'm not good in those situations. Has that like uh, helped or hurt your relationship? Oh, it's probably hurt every single one of them. But I think as comics, we're uh, naturally saboteurs when it comes to relationships. I mean, you're speaking the truth of me right now. I feel like I've ruined every good relationship that I've had. Yeah. All right. I can give you more. Can Uh, you? (laughs) <laughs> I love how dark this song is when it's about a girl. And uh, I love the piano twinkles. Peter, 
Play the opening of the song. I seen this girl walking down the block. I said, wait. Yo, baby, you want to come to my crib? Have some donuts and milk? Listen to a pop tune, baby. Please be his ex and be my bride. Don't blame it on yourself, sweet thing. You tried, love you, claim to share. Just wasn't there. You're too good for that, and it wasn't fair. Love's taking its toll. Your heart you stole. You was fooled by the face of a phony role. But I'll take up the slack, support you, baby. Now the night shining armor can only be me. I say out your name as you hold his hand. If you're not mine soon, girl, my soul is damned. I'm looking out the window at the stormy rain and the rush of the Making me sad, fantasize of the love we could have had. Cause I never met anyone like you before, and I can give you more. This sounds like Wu Tang to me. I can give you more. Just it's it sounds so so <laughs> some rap historians cite this song as the genre's first ever ballad. It would be later be eclipsed by a much more famous LL song, I Need Love. And they're saying this is why ladies love Cool James. And also keep this in mind, he is 16, maybe 17 at the time that he wrote this. Uh, I, I just love that, that little ending line to every verse. It's, yes, girl, I never met anyone like you before. And I can give you more. <laughs> How were you with ladies when you were 16, 17 years Awful. old? Awful. I was the worst. And I would get my feelings hurt constantly. Were you just bad at talking to him? I no, you know what it was? I used to put my heart right out there. Really? I thought it was like nice to be like honest. Like, hey, I I like you. I see you in, in at recess. Not recess. I see you at the lunchroom every I, day. I, I you know, I would get a I remember one time I got a had a crush on this girl. I was in I think I was in ninth grade, she was in tenth grade, or I was in tenth grade, she was in eleventh. Whatever it was, she was one grade above me. And her name was Carla Hill. And I remember I had this, I don't know why I had this crush on her, because she was really cute, and she was really nice, and she was an elf at the mall during Christmas time at yeah. Santa's thing. And I just remember, and she was always nice with a smile, and people weren't nice to me back then, so if somebody was nice, I was like, oh my God, this must be a good person. And I was like, I'm looking for good people in my life. And uh, and I started getting like this really decent crush on her, and I used to write these little notes like, I would kill for Carla Hill and stuff like that. And like Carla <laughs> Hill, with a, I'd write like her name with instead of an A, I'd put hearts. You know, Did like, you have a lot of classes with her? Or? No, I had no classes with so her. You but, just, but I would see her in the mall and she'd be like, hi. And I'm like, hey. And then uh, one time I was just like, I'm, I don't know, I gave her those notes. And, and? Then, and I was like, she was like, oh, so cute. And then, and then I was in the lunchroom and then these two fucking like preppy white guys were like, hey. Would you kill for Carla Hill? Fucking loser. Oh. And I was crushed. I was fucking crushed. Oh, God. That's and the then worst. I remember I looked, I never looked her, I looked at her or said anything to ever again. Oh. I was just like, fuck you, bitch. That's what you did. You know what she's doing now? It's probably an elf again. She's probably, she's probably Santa Claus now. <laughs> uh, I remember there was a girl, Heather Rogowski, I asked out Polak. every. She was Polish. Very, very cute. Uh, I asked her out almost, I'd say, if not every week, every other week for one whole year. I think it was eighth grade. I asked that girl out and she turned me down every time. And funniest thing, this is wild. I haven't thought about this in years. I went to a rave when I was 20 years old in Baltimore. And I get there. I like there. the people from Baltimore say Baltimore. 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 And... I see Heather there, 
you know, we're both 18, we're both 19, 20 years old now, and she is with a guy, and she sees me. Dude, I was a very cute raver, by the way. I mean, I had, like, frosted tips. I had, like, the best big pants on, the the ball necklace. Were you, you know. doing the... Uh... The ketamine? Oh, orb? Oh, yeah, dude. I was an orb dancer. What the fuck was that? I don't know, dude. I do liquid with my fingers. I did all that shit. And I remember she had a boyfriend. She saw me, and she was all about me. And then uh, later that night, I went and had sex with her. And that's a great story. And that was the greatest, like, turning around. Because I wasn't great with girls when I was 16, 17, uh, because not because they didn't like me or I wasn't cute. It was because I had such bad ADD that I was just, it was just, I didn't, I had, I didn't have any filters. So I would, I would talk my way out of, out of pussy or whatever. Oh, I'm with you. Why do ladies love Cool Russell today? Uh, Cool Russell now has got money, so it's a lot easier to love me. <laughs> okay, well, how do you? When you have n- money and nice, shiny things, people, uh, people tend to like you better. But how can you find out somebody genuinely likes you, not just because of what you provide? I mean, initially it'll start with that. It's the same with uh, good-looking women. Initially, you're there because they're pretty. Then you find out if they're nice or not. I, I got lucky. You know, my girlfriend's a very sweet girl. Um, she's very beautiful, but she's very sweet, and she's and she takes care of me now, and, and that's nice. Yeah. So, I mean, she doesn't have to do half the shit she does, but she does. So that lets me know that she's there for more than something else. No, you know I, I mean? get it. I get it. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, so, all right. So, so speaking of, uh, of what you can provide, let's talk about it in a different way. So when you do get down, what is your go-to sexy music soundtrack? What do you fucking that, do? Here's the problem now with that. Is that I'm 48, 49 years old. <laughs> I, I like all that stuff, but I can't play that. I don't want them to. Re- I don't want them to remember I'm an old guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what do you? So what I are just you? put the TV on. Hope for the movies. <laughs> <laughs> I don't put on music because I think it's a little cheesy now. Um. You know what's funny is I remember one time. What'd you do? Years, you had a, you used to have a mixtape. I mean, yeah, all the time. But I remember years tape. ago, this girl came over. She wanted me to take her virginity, and I was like, awesome. And I remember I put on the New York Undercover soundtrack from the TV show. They had a soundtrack that came out. For New York Undercover, and I put it on, and I took her virginity <laughs> to this, and then I remember I made her a copy of the CD before she left. <laughs> what the fuck, dude? I said, I said, you might want to remember I said, this. Uh, <laughs> here, here's a soundtrack to your virginity. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> what a fucking douchebag! Just ignore the what? the few songs at the end, though. I just I just threw those <laughs> on from a, a different mix. Shit, I am. But she really she asked for it. She was like. 
Do you think I get a copy of that? Yeah, I wish you, oh, you didn't tell me that. That changes everything. That she yeah, I like, know, but I was like, yeah, no problem. I was like so proud to do it. I'm like, here's a little something for you to take home with you. That's lady. fucking dope, dude. <laughs> uh, the first first time I ever touched uh, a girl's titties, there were Noel Lemire's. I did it at camp, and it was we were making out to the New Jack City soundtrack. Wow. And it gives me the new Jack Hustler. But see, it started with "I wanna say right. and then it went to New Jack, New Jack, New Jack Hustler. Another brother won the Find the Hustler of the Year award. All right, that takes us into Dangerous. Now I like this song, and I think, I'll tell you a funny thing about this song. Please, too. Um, when I was first started, when I was in my early career of DJ, I started DJing in '85. I think it was around '87. I decided I wanted to try and get a DJ name, and I thought I was going to call myself Danger Russ. It's a good name. And then I remember I used to scratch well, I dangerous. I didn't even think about that. Dangerous, yeah. And I would be like, danger, Russ. I'd break it down. Danger, Russ. Danger, Russ. Danger, Russ. Danger, Russ. Danger, Russ. <laughs> but I was like, it didn't sound clean at the time. But I was like, eh, it would have been a good name. I should have stuck with it. That's a great DJ name, dude. That's, that's that. dude, we're, we're, we're making dangerous uh t-shirts i love this song because i do love the cutting uh and that's all done by cut creator uh at little cool j's dj now back in the 80s it was common for rap albums to have one song about how great the dj was and this is ll's it's only fair because the rapper probably spends about nine tracks talking about his own greatness the dj never gets to speak for themselves so well the- everybody knew cut creator because he always shouted out cut creator cut creator rock and cut creator with the record, and cut creator, and cut creator, and then you know the funny, really funny thing is, by the time he got to bigger and deafer, he had cut creator still, but he had Bobcat. Bobcat was the really ill DJ. Bobcat Goldthwait? No, no this is DJ Bobcat, <laughs> and he was like really dope with the cuts. He would do all these really intricate cuts yeah. that cut creator couldn't do. But LL showing his loyalty didn't want to get rid of cut creator, so he kept cut creator and added Bobcat. That's fucking dope, man. That makes me fucking love L even more. Yeah. What I what I love is that, you know, the DJs back then didn't put their name on everything. Do you know what I mean? Like not like now where it's like, you know, DJ Khaled. Yeah, no, no. That, that, that's because it, it, nobody knew where the beats were coming. Nobody cared where the beats were coming from back then. And um, also we got into a, a time where we were sampling a lot, so nobody could really Yeah, but it's just I do kind of like the rapper would shout out the producer of the song. If as they, they should, as they should. But what I'm saying is, it's just the you know, it's only only in new hip hop do they do that. That would have been funny. It's, if like it's if it's like, in a different. If you like, know, we were egocentric in a braggadocious way. These guys are egocentric in a very egotistical way. Yes, very. But I would love to see like like every producer like they had to do that on one of their songs. So it would be like the Beatles, like yesterday, George Martin. All right, Peter, play minute two, second thirty nine. Now, you came up as a DJ in Toronto in the 80s and became quite successful. So what started that obsession for you? For me, for DJing, it was uh, it was just a, wanting to learn how to do those cuts and scratches and juggles and all that stuff. And then mixing became the next thing. It was like, oh, you got to mix, too. You got to learn how to mix. I'm going to learn how to mix. And I didn't have these good turntables. And I had the little SLB 200s, which was a Techniques turntable that had a belt drive system. And it had a wheel 
for the pitch. So you had to wheel it with your finger, and it would pick up really fast and slow down really slow. But it was never on in time with you. And if you tried to move it with your finger, you would stretch the belt, and the belt would fall off the, the uh, mechanism, and your turntable would go dead. Did that happen to you before? Oh, yeah. And I used to go into Kmart and steal the belts out of the turntables they had on display. And bring them nice. Off. And then I learned that you could use an elastic band, and I was like, there we go. And so it just became, wasn't it just an, an immediate obsession? An like, immediate obsession. I would sit in the basement just with my uh, uh, The Show records by Dougie Fresh and Get Fresh Crew. Yeah. And I was like learning how to cut. Uh, Is that And I was learning how to cut. Started off on the avenue when I made a name called the Get Fresh Crew. And I was to scratch Get Fresh Crew. Get Fresh Crew. To the point where I burnt out the record. So when it would get to that part, it'd be like, well, it started off on the avenue when I made a name called the <laughs> I literally had burnt the grooves away. Oh, that's so dope, though, dude. That's so dope. That's <laughs> like it's like whiplash, like that kid with his hands bloody. He just wore out the record. Well, what was the best DJ gig you ever had? Um, it would have been in the in my later years as of as an adult, and um, it's DJing with uh, Nile Rodgers and Sheik, who did La Freak, yeah, Good dude. Times. Uh, uh, I want your love. Now Rogers produced like the new everything. Uh, he produced that that fucking Daft Punk Daft Punk record. Yeah. He also produced um, Sister Sledge. We are family. He wrote all those tracks. He did uh, Let's Dance for David Bowie. He did. Yeah, he ups- did everything. He did Upside Down for Diana Ross. He did I'm Coming Out. He did Notorious for Duran Duran. He did Like a Virgin. He did uh, uh, Not While You See a Chance. The other song. Higher Love. Was it uh, what, by Steve Winwood? Yeah, that's, that's Nile. That's all Nile. So Nile and I are good friends, and Nile knows I DJ. So Nile and I will do... I will get you the video of this if you like. Please. Um, Nile and I would do this thing with the band, and he would play the beginning of La Freak, the guitar lick. Ding, 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 ding. And then I would be scratching the, ah, freak out. You know, the ah part? Yeah. So we'd be like, and we'd battle each other. We'd be like, dink, dink, dink. And like, ah, 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 And we'd just keep going back and forth till we'd be like, ah, freak out. And then the band kicks in. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's amazing. How did you make the move from beats to jokes? <clears throat> um, I started doing comedy in 89. So it was, you know, I was doing it all at the same time. I just didn't know which one was going to pay off. I was really just hedging my bets. I would DJ to um, to make money. Like, I would do comedy on open mics Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday maybe. And then on the weekends, I needed money, so I would DJ either at a club or at a party or at a wedding or at a fucking birthday party. I didn't give a shit. I'd play whatever. And this is the time we had to carry records. You'd just be schlepping around a crate. and fucking up my trunk and my hands. <laughs> what kind of car did you have? I had a, uh, I had a Saturn. Wow, dude. Look how far you've come. All right. Uh, three the hard way, uh, also known as El Shabazz. El Shabazz. Uh, what up? Yo, this, Dre. <laughs> this didn't really seem like this a real was song. Just, <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was him fucking around. And sometimes when, I, uh, when I'm talking to LL, I'll say that to him. Another album. Uh, This is a very iconic song, though, sampled and referenced by so many people. Third Base, DeBrat, Rodney O, Joe Cooley, Eazy-E, Beastie Boys, Invisible Scratch Pickles, Mix Master Mike. The list goes on. Invisible Scratch Pickles. So this is a hidden impromptu acapella track at the end of side one. Uh, Honestly, I think it was just trying to kill time. 
fill space. There wasn't enough space to put a whole song. Yeah. And he didn't want to leave a big blank spot at the end. No, I understand. It was like, and, it's like a minute 30 long. Yep. So I remember playing this just to fuck around to scratch with. So, like I said, this is a hidden impromptu acapella track. Now, let me ask you, what is something about you that you like to keep hidden? I don't know. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't really keep much hidden. <laughs> I'm pretty much an open book. Yeah, you do kind of open it up on stage. <clears throat> yeah, I don't I don't really hide much. I, I, I think it's weird when you do. If you're a comic, your job is to be exposed and open, and that's... It's you know part of your your um, personal nudity up there. So yeah, to speak. I, I completely agree. Because actually, those are the the best comics, the ones that just basically bare their soul. But is there anything that you won't talk about on stage? Um, no, not really. I mean, in certain places, I won't talk about religion. Yeah, well, that's. But as uh, I get older, I, and and you know, in America and. North America, I have no problem talking about it, <clears throat> or about, in Europe or whatever. What about around the world? Is there any places? No, around the world, to... I don't touch it because it's, it's too sensitive a topic out yeah, there. Yeah, completely. Um, what's fascinating about this song and this record is, in general... I is, can't call it a song. Well, I mean... I call it a track, but not a song. It's a track. Song. All right, what's, what's fascinating about this track, you're 100% right, <laughs> is how, up until this, and even after, there's no cursing, Gangster imagery or use of the N-word. It sounds refreshingly wholesome today, like an era that never existed. And then you hear this and you feel like you're hearing the real street corner that these guys are sitting at. It's just them just talking and like being together. And I think that's what's so badass about this track. It's just this moment in time. Now, you started in stand-up in the 80s, right, as the comedy boom happened. Yeah, I started right as the comedy boom ended. Oh, you started as it ended? Yeah, and now we're in the boom again. Completely. Well, now it's a whole different world. But when you look back on all the comedians then, they had to have full, clean shows that were network ready. It was almost like Lenny Carlin and Pryor uh, when they were just starting out. Do you think that made comedians find a stronger identity and material? Well, I don't. Here's the thing. When I started, you didn't need to be clean. Um, the The clean patch was like around 80... I want to say 88 to 91, maybe 90. And that was the uh, evening at the improv era. And that is basically what killed stand up because everybody got on TV and not everybody was good. Yeah, I remember Comic Strip Live. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. And you were like, oh, this guy's terrible. How the fuck did that guy get on TV? <clears throat> and back then, getting on TV was a big deal. Yeah. It's not as big a deal anymore. You've been on TV, yeah. I, I have, so. but 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 also now I don't think they book. I don't think they book for who's funniest now. Oh yeah, there's a lot of people that don't deserve half the shit, most of the shit they got. Yeah, there's a lot of people, and you know, you could we could sound like haters when we talk about it, but there's a lot of people where you go, how the fuck do they keep banking on that person? Why does that guy keep getting work? Like what the fuck? Do you know anybody who thinks that person's funny? No. Do you know any people that go, that guy's funny? No, they just know his their name because they've been put in their face so much. Yeah, no, completely. Do you think comedians today have the same opportunities that that you had back then? Or how I do think you feel comedians today have much more opportunities. Yeah. And there's more venue avenues for you to to do things. You, you're in a little bit more control of the rate at which you move forward. Um, You know, there's a lot of kids out there that, that are really just throwbacks and and not a, not yeah, necessarily not you're... necessarily a good or bad thing, but throwback in the sense that all they do is go to the comedy club, work on their act, or hang out and do comedy whenever they can, 
as much as they can and they don't use the social media to their advantage or they don't do this and they don't do that. And that's because they're focused on wanting to become a better comic. Completely. But and, and, and those are the people that suffer, the ones that are really working on the craft yeah, because of their love for the craft. I mean, it's, imp- it's just like you, we have to do so much shit now. It's, yeah, you, gotta, it's, you, gotta, you, gotta, you need a podcast. You need a goddamn comedy we're jam. We're doing it right now. Yeah, <laughs> you need a- Well, to be honest, I, I'll be honest. Like, I, mean, I, like you need to hustle. You, I, I love, listen, I, stand-up is my, my number one love out of all of, of everything that I do. I've known you, when did you start? I started in 2008. August 1st. And I met you 2012. 12. When we met. Right. It was after the big thing. Yeah. And uh, I've watched you hustle and I've watched you grow and I've watched you become a player in the game to the point where people need you more than you need them. Oh, I love hearing you say this. It oh, really is. It's a, it was, from, honestly, for me as a guy who knew you when you were kind of in a really dark place, to see you come out seven years later... And, you know, you've created successful show after show and you keep coming up with cool fucking idea after cool fucking idea. It's impossible to negate or ignore what you have. Yeah. Well, I think I think and thank you for that. Uh, I think like what I've realized was I wanted to be the guy that just kept his nose down and did stand up. But it was like like I you just still got to eat. You st- yes. And I love stand up comedy more than anything. But I've I've realized that I have to keep creating these doors to walk through because the industry is just like, well, we just don't know what to do with you. So it's I'm just same, like, well, I'll same show. With, yeah, same with me. Exactly. You and, look at it. I've been doing this 30 years. I'm not a household name still. And to to some people, a lot of people know yeah, me. Let's not I'm not going to downplay very, very that popular. Yes, I'm not downplaying that people know me, but the industry still kind of like is like, eh. What else you got? And you're like, wait, it's such you-? bullshit. But it's, and it's literally at a point now where I think it's hilarious because <clears throat> I almost hope that they continue to ignore me because it gives me something to hang on to. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's a good place to rest my anguish. Like, oh, dude, uh, it's having a chip on your shoulder is some of the I, best I, I things wouldn't that say you- I have a chip on my shoulder. but I, I have one. I mean, yeah. it's I definitely have this me. kind of a smirk like, oh, yeah. Oh, right. You're ignoring me. I forgot. Oh, well, I'm just going to go make some money then. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because they're ignoring me. It doesn't cost me anything. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's, not, it's not making me go, oh, my God, if they don't pay attention, how am I going to pay my mortgage? I'm like, oh, fuck you still. Okay, thank you. Hey, fuck you back. I'm going to go make some money. So Bye-bye. then at the beginning, though, how, like, how hard was the hustle at the beginning then? I mean, For me, where, it was, where the- I, I hustled just as hard as everyone else, if, you know, if not harder. I mean, at that time, you got to understand, I was the first Indian guy. There was nobody like me before me. So I had nobody to look up to. I had nobody to go... I'm going to be like that person. Yeah. And I had to meander my way through the business. I didn't know. And nobody in my family's in the entertainment business. My family's are immigrants. Nobody in the, in, is in the business back home either. It was like, I'm this guy taking this new path that my dad literally sat me down and said, son, this job is for the blacks and the Jews and the whites. This is not a place for us. And I said, that's exactly why I'm going to make it. Fuck yeah, dude. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, because we are not represented. I said, this is, a, this is a fucking opening for me. That's the hole. I'm going to go fill that hole, Dad. And he goes, I just don't want your feelings to get hurt by this game. And here we are, 30 years here later. Here we are. I mean, but there's... Living but in, in this fucking but, dump. This, this house is terrible. <laughs> All right, Rock the Bells. Now, this is my favorite song on the record. Uh, it's, this was the biggest song. This is... All right, so I love everything about this song. I love the drums. The beat is so sick. It's also funny that to me that this was like a hard beat back in the day. Like this beat must have fucking blown minds, especially off of this record. This is probably it's not the it's not the most intricate one, but 
but it's just you can tell how far we've come. Right. Uh, but the simplicity of this is what's key to it. Uh, and it does go pretty hard. Peter, play minute one, second 18. Some girls like this jam and some girls won't because I make a lot of money and your boyfriend, boyfriend don't. LL went to hell. Now, gonna rock the bells and all you guys rock the bells. Give me a panic attack right there trying to stay on beat. This is so great. Uh, I, I do love this song. I, I can imagine that this must have been in like just been rocking in New York City nonstop when this came out because I feel like there was probably nothing like it. Now, uh, the original beat was so dope. It's so dope, dude. It's so dope. But you got to also play the original version, which is not on the album. Yes, the original version is a seven-minute version that was based on the 1982 song "Breaking Bells" by Crash Crew, and had all kinds of doop, bells doop. over. It had a lot of cowbell. But LL didn't like it, and had Rick Rubin and Ad Rock chop this down to four minutes to take the bells off. So ironically, they chopped are- them. No, that's a, they made a completely new song. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's they not even it like a remix. It's just another song. Oh, really? Rock the bells. Oh, because what I what I had gotten was that they just took the bells off. No, you listen to the original and you listen to this. They're, they're two completely different songs. Even I, as a kid. When I had the record, I go, ooh, what's this original version I played? I go, this sucks. And I was like, this. I go, well, this remix. There's uh, bells on this song. There's not supposed to be bells. It's rock the bells, not play the bells. Uh, but they took the bells out. Have you ever been forced to cut something from your act? Um, when I'm like I'm, when you're taping, when you do a special. Yeah. On my, matter of fact, on my last special on Almost Famous for Netflix, uh, I shot it in Toronto. And uh, there was this guy in the front row who in Toronto was really famous because he, you know what he's like? He's like the uh, sit and sleep mattress guy over here. You're killing me, Larry. (laughs) If you do that outside of here, nobody knows what the hell you're talking about. (laughs) But he's like that in Toronto and he's this, he's, he buys your gold. He, and he does these really cheesy commercials and he's like, I'm the cash man. I give you money for your old gold. Oh, and I he, love that. And he spray paints himself silver or gold, and his and his catch line is, oh, yeah. <laughs> and he's this dorky South African Jewish white man. Yeah. And he was in the front row, and I just kept, I was doing the middle of my act, and I would just look at him, and i go, I'm the cash man. <laughs> and the audience would just start laughing, and I wanted to keep it in in the special, but Netflix was like, too regional. Nobody's going to get it. I go, if they Google it or YouTube it, it'll be right there in front of them. They will be in on the joke. No, it's too regional. Take it out. I'm like, whatever. So, yeah, I was forced to edit that out. The track peaked at number 17 on Billboard's R&B hip-hop chart in 1986. Rock the Bells? 1986. Yes, it did. The track's name later served as the name of a festival and tour of hip-hop artists that spanned from yep. 2004 to the 13. Uh, I went to it. I and, went to it in 2010, and it's or, also the name of a hip hop station on Sirius XM that includes. It's uh, owned by LL. It's owned by LL, and it was launched in 2018. Uh, next song is the one that I think everybody got hooked to. Was I need a beat? 
Sound this to me. You know what's funny, Russell? This to me sounds like a Nine Inch Nails song. Those little like electrical noises. It's very. It's very. You can see. I can see that 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 Trent Reznor was influenced by this record. Right. This to me sounds like a fucking Nine Inch Nails song. The synth noises, all the production. This is a standout track on the album. Whereas the this other, was the first single. Yeah, that others decidedly minimalistic production. This employs more jarring effects, like I said, playing with time and looping vocals in a way that was very uncommon back then. Peter, play a little bit of the instrumental uh, at at one twenty two. I love everything about this song. Now, this was first a 12-inch LL released uh, before he released the album in 1984. Now, we mentioned it, or you mentioned it a second ago. Speaking of first, now, uh, you were one of the first comics to bring a special to Netflix. And HBO had been famous for comedy specials, and Comedy Central built the whole platform around it. How did you end up being the first on Netflix? Um... They approached me about, uh, they had bought a bunch of my older specials. I think they got it. They had some nice response to it. And uh, they had planned on branching out when they came to me. So, uh, and they wanted to do the first straight to Netflix special. And they asked me to be the person. And I was m- more than happy to do it. Yeah. Because I like being a trailblazer. I like being the first to do these kinds of things. And uh, shit, I thought we were best friends at that time. <laughs> and, yeah, and uh, and I was so excited to be part of the family, and they made me feel like that. And uh, so they did it. We did it. Yeah. And and at that time, I think they were only in uh, North America. If they, I don't. Yeah, they were in North America, and they were in Norway for some reason. And they were about to expand to Australia and. They hadn't even gone. You're like this is like right at the jump of of Netflix. Yeah, they right? hadn't even gone global yet. They were planning on going global, and then uh, and so they figured because I had a global audience, they would do it that way. But I I don't think it just it just didn't. I don't know what happened with it, but you know whatever. They think, did. Think, I did two specials with them, and that's great. And think, but things come to an end. Yeah, uh, I, you know. I Need a Beat was co-written with LL and Rick Rubin, also with Adam Horowitz uh, from the Beastie Boys. King Ad Rock. King Ad Rock. He was also the guy who found LL's demo tape and pushed Rick and Russell to give him a record deal. So Ad Rock is hugely instrumental in, in this album being heard by us. Who was the most instrumental in giving you your big break? <clears throat> I don't think there's any one person who gave me my big break. Um uh for me it was the internet so i had i guess it would be youtube i would be the first youtube sensation really yeah and i'll tell you how and why i did a special in 2003 it aired in 2004 and it started getting uh um shared in file sharing group chats people started breaking it up and sending it as a file and um it started my that special got chopped up into different. I was talking about different nationalities. It would get chopped up into the nationality, and the bit would go 
you that were, you were Jamaican yeah. and get sent around a bunch of Jamaicans. You were Chinese, got sent around a bunch of Chinese. You were Indian, Italian, whatever I talked about, it got sent around to these people. And it became like this little underground cult following. Cut to 2005, YouTube starts, and the entire special gets put on YouTube. I, to this day, don't know who put it on there. But you owe them a huge debt of gratitude. Uh, you sure do, but you know, it's, <laughs> I'm never going to be able to find out who it was. No, but it, so it just got shared to, to the and point it got, where... The one it got put on YouTube, it literally hit over... It's like over 100 million hits or something like that. It's insane. It's still a shock to me, you know what I mean? It's not like I sit there and go, yeah, this was meant to happen. I go, this is a complete fluke, dude. <laughs> this could have this could have been anybody, but I got lucky. Oh, good for you, dude. That's fucking incredible. If you're the guy that put that on YouTube, send an email to the 500 podcast yeah. Yeah. at gmail.com. And, and I know and you're with, out there. With some sort of proof. <laughs> I don't know how they're going to prove it. just some Indian computer whiz. Like, oh, it I had to have been. I fucking love the Russell. Yeah. The commercial success of I Need a Beat Along with the BC Boys single Rock Hard helped Def Jam land a distribution deal with Columbia Records the following year. About the same time, LL dropped out of high school to pursue his career. While he eventually returned to get his GED, he had already established That's a general education on decency. Now, you joke about being cheap. But you set up the Russell Peters North Peel Scholarship, an award that helps finance up to three years of college for kids who went to high school. However, like LL, you didn't end up with what you have today by going the higher learning route either. How did that come about and why? I uh, got kicked out of regular high school after 10th grade. And um, so 11th and 12th grade, they said they at that first high school, I was just miserable every day because I was getting bullied and picked on all the time. So I was like. I just didn't want to be there. And so the guidance counselor calls me and he says, I think uh, you're never going to graduate. First of all, you're never going to graduate from this high school. You need 16 credits by the end of 10th grade and you have seven. You have seven accumulated from nine and 10. Oh, wow. Yeah, like you're never going to graduate. There's no way you're going to have, like, so have you thought about taking a trade? I'm like, huh? I, I never thought about a trade. What do you like to do? I go, oh, do you like cooking? I go, yeah, I like cooking. Okay, we're going to send you down to North Peel, and they have a cooking program. It's a trade school, a.k.a. a behavioral school. Um, And they sent me there, and I took chef training. And it was full of kids that were, um, they either had behavioral problems, they had ADD, or they had, uh, or they might have been handicapped, whatever the deal was. Um, But to me, it was, it was more real people. They were they were real, you know, they, they uh, less filter on them. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I really connected with that. And I knew I was never going to be a chef, but I didn't know what I was going to be. And I was popular in that school and nobody bullied me and everybody was cool. And the, there was the gangsters in that school, but the gangsters liked me cause I was funny. Yeah. And I was also a good lookout guy for them when we go to the mall. <laughs> you know what I mean? We go to the mall. I would distract. Put it them. in your bag. Put it in your bag. You I good, would you distract good. the lady at the counter, and they would rob the store, and then I would leave because I was like this little Indian boy. They were like, "Oh, he's not going to do anything." And then all these black dudes. Come they know you were in cahoots. Oh yeah. <laughs> so it was like that. All right. Next song. That's a lie. That's uh, a lie. The opening. You're a liar. This is, I mean, this I is, did not like this, this song is, at all. It's like this and Dear Yvette and a few others I just find to be extremely humorous. It starts off with Russell Simmons. And Russell Simmons is the voice throughout of the guy that's like, yo, man, I got this Rolex. And he's like, yo, I got this new car. Uh, even though it's cheesy as fuck, I do like this song. 
Uh, it's literally uh, about people trying to impress others by lying. Uh, the one thing I do like is the bells throughout. Uh, Peter, play the chorus. I mean, that's just garbage. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I just listen, just so you know, in the hip hop world, this song was never rated ever. You claim to do things that no one could achieve. You said you did things Ripley's wouldn't believe. This is like white people rapping. I'm so sorry. Uh, they also have the funny line the filet mignon White Castle line was pretty funny. Now, something cool fact about this. 23 years later, Ice Cube basically made the same song with You Ain't Gonna Lie to Kick It. Uh, And basically, Ice Cube needs you and yours to know that you don't got to make yourself out to be something you didn't, that you you aren't to hang with him. Now, this was pretty similar to Run DMC's comical diss track, You Talk Too Much. Ha ha, ha ha, ha ha, very funny, motherfucker. They sampled Eddie Murphy in that. On this, Russell Simmons tells outlandish lies and gets called out and schooled by LL. What's the dumbest lie you've ever been caught telling? Uh, I'm not much of a liar. Let me see. Um, it's usually to a chick if I have lies. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then you—that's why I don't lie because I, you know, you lie, it literally does spiral out of control. But you I don't, mean, have, it, you it, don't you have don't, to lie. It's like you literally—it's you, you really don't. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't lie, but that's a lie. I, uh, we all lie. Just we all lie. I mean, we all lie, to, but it's to protect something else. Sure. You know I mean, well, can you repair your trust with somebody if you found out they lied to you? It's difficult. My assistant's been lying to me lately, and I, I'm having a tough time believing any fucking thing he tells what is me. He, what did he lie about? I don't know. He's lied about some chick, and I'm like, dude, don't fucking lie about that. I don't care. Yeah. It was like, it was a lie where you're like, why? This is not only is it. Did you not need to lie there? Why would you lie about that? Like that's it, out of everything. It's you completely could lie for, yeah. unconsequential to my life or yours. It, it's really none of my business. You don't need to lie about that. Maybe he just wants to impress you. No, like Russell Simmons in the song. All right. Well, what's what's the biggest lie you've heard about yourself? Um, it's funny when sometimes people. Yeah, I met you once before. You were kind of a jerk. I'm like, what? That's bullshit. no fucking way. I, I'm, I. I pride myself on being friendly to every human being I meet. You know, if you're rude to me, I'm going to be rude back to you, though. You know what I mean? If you're yeah. going to be a dick, I'm going to be a dick, too. I'm like, I'm going to be a fucking dick. I, I can't imagine you first impression to somebody being that way. I mean, every, you're, since I've met you, you've been one of the nicest guys I've ever met. You are a Holocaust denier, but besides that, you're fantastic. What Holocaust? <laughs> All right. Uh, Holocaust to be the boss. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from NoFX, and Ian MacKay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fall Out Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. 
<laughs> All right, you'll rock. Uh, is the next song you rock? Do you like this one? Yeah, you do like this one. I think it's okay. This was on the B side of "I Want You," I think, or um, or it was on the B side of "I Need a Beat." This this song to me, uh, Peter, play the intro into the first verse because we'll talk about that. Every verse on this kind of sounds the same. Uh, the only thing I really liked about it that, that really stuck out was the Rick Rubin guitar chorus. It's kind of got that like Beastie Boys feel. This is just more of LL saying he's the best. Uh, he's saying he's good, his rhyming's good, his DJ's good, his turf's good. The one line that I did like, uh, I disintegrate rappers, I can and I could. The great Edgar Allan Poe couldn't write wish- this good. Oh, I thought, oh yeah, no, there's another song. He said, I got a gold name plate that says, I wish you would. Just so you don't need to boast yourself up, I'll do it for you. All right? Your career has had incredible pinnacles of success. You've won many awards and honors and have sold out arenas. You basically, you've just, you've done everything. Uh, what's been your greatest honor or achievement? Ooh, I was just thinking about this the other day. Shit balls. Um, I don't know. There's been a few, but. what? What's, give me some of them. I think the first time I sold out the Air Canada Center in Toronto. For two nights, it was in 2007, and you know I'd been doing stand-up 18 years at the time, and uh, I just I'd moved to America a year before that, so I'd only been living in the states for one year, and I came home to this amazing uh, reception, and it was like a really a, a real moment for me when I was in the Air Canada Center backstage. And, you know, the the energy in the room was incredible. And then the lights went black to start the show, and you heard the crowd Just roar. Yeah. And I got teary-eyed. Oh, man. I started yeah. getting, my chin started quivering, and there was tears in my eyes. I'm like, oh, fuck, I got to go on stage, and I'm about to cry right now. <laughs> and then I walked out, and they gave me a standing O, and they were screaming, and I had to, my chin was quivering. I'm like, stop it, you're going to make me cry. Oh. <laughs> I mean, that's got to be an incredible feeling, it was, especially it was to be amazing. able to come back. Um, any others that really have stuck out to you? Uh, there there are, and I was just thinking about them the other day. God damn it, and I forgot it. It'll come back to me. It'll come back to you if you think of it. Uh, LL's grandfather, who was a jazz saxophonist, got him the equipment that started his career. Uh, who was the most supportive member of your family? My brother, I would say. Just, my brother was just, the most supportive. Just got your back the whole time. Yeah, I mean, he's my big brother. He's six years older than me, so you know, when I'm when I wanted to when I had started considering doing stand up, I was eighteen, and my brother said, "Well, if that's what you want to do, have you ever seen it live?" And I was like, "No, actually." I mean, I'd seen Carlin and I'd seen Eddie Murphy live, but I'd never like been to like a comedy club and yeah. seen it because I didn't have a car and we lived in the suburbs. So I was like, "How am I going to get there?" Like, if I get there, getting there is not the problem. Getting home would be the problem. Sure. 
So your brother took you? I was, yeah, well, let's go. So he took me to go see theater sports, which was like um, an improv class or troupe sure. kind of thing. And I was like, nah, that's not it. But then he took me to Yuck Yucks on an open mic night. And I watched it and I was like, oh, wow. And I was like, I think I could do that. And I think I could be better than that person and that person. I, I want to try it. You went up that night? No. Nope. I you- plotted it. I plotted it. I, you know, had I, had I started um, uh, maybe a couple of months earlier, I would have started when I was 18 then. I was like, fuck. <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? But uh, I started when I, I, I just turned 19 when I started. How was that first set? Awful. Really? Fucking you thought it was awful? Awful. But it's, I always think that the first time somebody does stand-up, they actually think it, it's like, no, everybody's always like, it went well, because you have nope. nothing to compare it against. Nope. I remember. I, I, that's also the thing. I've also been very honest with myself, and I can also judge comics when, I, when they get off and how they perceive their set to have been. Because I'm like, how'd it go? Oh, man, that was great. And I was like, and in my head, I'm like, really? You heard great. Interesting, because I didn't hear that. Yeah. <laughs> You know that's, what I mean? It, it shows me how delusional somebody is. Well, I think, you know, what's funny is I, I'm able I to... I think that's an L.A. thing, too. Where it's very nobody, L.A. It's nobody what, wants no, to admit they bombed. That's all. No, no, no. I think that's... I, I agree with that, but I also want to disagree because I think that a lot of the comics, like, I started just saying it was fun because I'm having fun every set. Yeah. You know what I mean? I've become very realistic with what I hear, and it's like, I know when I kill. There's a feeling that you yeah. get inside of you when you're killing. And when I do kill, I will never say I killed. No, never. You might tell, like, one person. Be like, Dude, that I'm like, fuck, that was a, gr- that I had was a fucking <laughs> great time up there. I just ripped. You guys, there was, like, nine girls trying to fuck me afterwards. Yeah. Can I tell my girl that? Hold on. All yeah. right. We talked about the most supportive. Who was the least supportive family member? Uh... Can I consider them a family member if they're married to one of somebody in my family? Yeah, what did they give you backhanded compliments? Not even my cousin, uh, and I hope they listen to this. My cousin married this guy. I'm not going to name names. And her husband. This must have been around uh, ninety. <coughs> excuse me, ninety four, ninety five. And um, <coughs> I said, "Hey, man, you should come see me do stand up. I'm going to be at Yuck Yucks. Let me know when you make it, and then maybe I'll come see you." No, let me know when you're headlining or something, and maybe I'll come see you. But until then, I don't want to watch you work out your material. Oof. I was like, oh, really, fuckface? Is that right? And then uh, I never invited him ever again. And then uh, I was in some city on tour, and he showed up at my show, and in my head I was like, I want to fucking tell you to leave. This was recently, too. I was like, I want this motherfucker to leave, but I didn't say nothing. Has he ever said anything about that? No, because like, he's a dick. He's just that dude. He's just that much of a dick. We probably I didn't say that. I don't. Yeah, of course you didn't say so, that. So, so all right. This is this isn't coming from the album. But if if you could like rub your success in anybody's face, who would it be? There's a lot of people. I think that's the reason why I'm successful is because there was a lot of people whose faces I wanted to rub it in. Uh, a lot of people were mean to me. A lot of people were negative to me growing up. And I think that's what motivated me to want to be successful because I don't know yeah. how old I was when somebody said, you know, the best revenge is success. I said, what does that even mean? They go, if you make it at whatever you're trying to do and become successful, that burns everybody else. And I didn't understand it until it started happening. And I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, this is fucking great. It's, <clears throat> it's so great. Yeah, I, I definitely was the guy in high school that people were like, either he is going to do this or he is and he's going to follow his dreams and do that or i'm going to die very early so i had an eighth grade an eighth grade teacher um mr Steele, piece of shit um 
I was sweeping the classroom. You know, you had to take turns. I was sweeping the class. He goes, come on, sweep faster. And I go, I'm sweeping. And he, I, I'm trying to get the dust everywhere, right? And he goes, well, come on, practice your future profession. And, and now I'm sure if you ask him now, he goes, no, I was just trying to motivate him. What like, a dick. Yeah, and I go, no, you weren't trying to motivate me because you were always a fucking asshole to me in that class. You were a cocksucker, and now I've made it, and you're still a dick. I I I I can't believe a teacher. I mean, I've had teachers that were that were pieces. Gordon Steele. If you're out there, Gordon, go fuck yourself. Yeah, absolutely, well, I you wonder fucking what... corner of your mouth. Wipe the corner of your mouth too, you fucking jizz face. Hit that crust. Hit yeah, that lip crust. Always, always with the lip crust. Well, uh, final song on the record. I want you. Here is the second rap ballad on the record, and this one really ends the record with an eye on his female fan base. Like Teddy Pendergrass, LL really brilliantly connected with his entire female audience. He would use this to even greater success on the ballad, I Need Love, a few years later. Uh, A year later. A year later? Dude, he was churning them out. Yeah, he was. How did you find your target audience? I just looked, and there they were. I um, <laughs> I didn't source. I didn't search them out. I was. I think. I think that's one of the things that always rings true for me. If you just do you, they will find you. If you try to find them, they will become elusive. But and you, you are not being true to yourself if you search for them. But you have a very strong connection with your fans. My my, I, and I don't like calling fans either because I don't feel like. I always feel like if you call somebody a fan. It puts you in a position where you're somehow better or higher than them. And in my world, there is no better or higher. We are all the same, which sounds very cliche. And I know no, it but sounds, it's, but it's, it. it's, it's a real thing in my head. I, so I always say my friends, I'm like my, the, you know, the, the people that come and see me, I consider them my friends because they continuously to support, they continuously support me. And they're always there. They're there. We have a great relationship. And when and I'm on stage, they're there to see me and I'm, and I'm there to give them what they came to see. Yeah, and why do you think you think that's that's the reason that you have the strong connection with them is that you're not calling them the fans or was there no any, no I don't anything I don't. that you like that you can remember that kind of you think really built that <clears throat> I think they just appreciate the realness of me I don't pretend to be something I'm not I'm not trying to be um, what's popular at the moment I'm just trying to be me yeah. and uh, <clears throat> I didn't change my style up because that's the style that's working right now. I didn't uh, change my words up because those words are not acceptable anymore. I'm being me. I'm being true to myself. And if you're being true to yourself, the people that like you will appreciate that about you. Completely. All right. You so, went, it sounds like a fucking. Yeah, but it, it sounds but like it's, a moment. But it's so true, though. All right. You want to do a couple facts and we'll get out of here? Let's do it. All right. Uh, facts. 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 All right. <laughs> Rock the Bells became synonymous with old school rap, and in 2004, the first Rock the Bells festival took place in San Bernardino, California, featuring a reunited Wu-Tang Clan in what would be their final performance. The festival was documented in the movie of the same name, which was released in 2006. Uh, Who are your all-time favorite hip-hop acts? As a group? Whoever. Let's see. De La Soul, Tribe Called Quest, Wu-Tang Clan, um, Run DMC. uh, The Roots. The Roots are very dope. 
One of the best concerts I ever saw in my life was I saw uh, Old Dirty Bastard in the Brooklyn Zoo. Just Old Dirty Bastard. ODB by himself? It was one of the most magical experiences of my life. I saw Wu-Tang in Toronto in 1996, and ODB that night slapped the sound guy. Did he really? <laughs> I was standing like near the sound guy, and ODB's on stage like, turn my motherfucking mic up. And he was like, and, the, and you see the sound guy going like, that's it. That's, that's all I can give you. It's that it's, it's max. And he's like, turn my motherfucking mic up. <laughs> and ODB walks over with the mic. He's like, don't ever disrespect me, motherfucker. I'm God. And he slapped him in the fucking head. And I'm like, oh, shit. That's incredible. When I went to the show, there was, I was all the way in the back of the theater. And then it was packed to the gills. And then people started fighting. And as they would fight, they'd start pulling people out. By the end of the show, I'd say half the audience was there because so many people got kicked out. Right. And I was in the front row. All right. In 1989, New York indie alternative band Too Much Joy covered That's a Lie. They even got LL to make an appearance in the music video for it to tell a lie during the breakdown. It got them more MTV airplay and boosted their careers. All right, final question. Because like LL, you're a worldwide phenomenon. Where do you think you are the least recognized? Where am I the least recognized? Middle America. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you do you play out in the Midwest? Not that much. Like when you say Midwest, you mean like real America. I mean like, yeah, like you said, middle America. Like I don't do Idaho or or the Dakotas or I've never been to New Mexico or the Omaha or Nebraska. Or I've never been to any of these places. But have you been to you? Have you been to every continent in the world? I assume almost every continent in the world. Where have you missed Antarctica? Uh, Antarctica. You're like no, I played That's the true. yuck yucks up there. Yeah, I, I played the uh, ice wall. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have not been to Antarctica. I have performed in Greenland, ironically. Really? Yeah. Which isn't green. No, not it's at all. It's ice, right? Yes, it is. That, would that be? Is that the South Pole or the North Pole or what is that? Now Greenland is is like isn't that like attached to Canada? Uh, it's north of it. Yeah, but it's like over. It's like above us a little bit to the like to the right. It's basically. It was twenty four hour darkness when I did it. Like the movie Thirty Days of Night. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So where and people are bummed, like mad, depressed. Oh, I, I could imagine. And dude. I fucking bombed. It was amazing. Really? Yeah, and I'm like, this is weird. You guys have nothing else going on here, and and I'm fucking bombing. Well, how enter- is this possible? I'm entertaining you guys. Yeah. There's nothing here. Nothing. They literally stared at me like, "What the fuck are you doing?" And They're I'm probably like, so tired. And I was like, just- I don't understand. You you have nothing else going on in this town. <laughs> Laugh, motherfucker. All right. Well, where are you the most recognized? Uh, Canada for sure. Well, I love that you came on here, man, and and I'm it's I'm lo- I love that you made me come. I, I this is literally <laughs> all over the place. This was this was this was literally uh, the second I saw this record, I thought of you. So uh, I'm really glad we got to sit down and talk about it. But I am as well, and you know, and Todd, if you ever listen to this, you send me the link. I'm gonna send it to LO when it comes out. Please, Todd, this is the fucking show I wanted you to sit in on with me because I wanted to go over this record with you. Um, but this is how you treat your Indian brother. That motherfucker. All right, thank you, brother. Yo, event, there's a lot of rumors going around. It's so bad, baby, you might have to skip town. See something smelling fishy and they say it's you. All I know is that you made it with the whole damn crew. They say you're a man eater during the full moon. Mascot of the senior boys locker room. They said event walked in. There wasn't too much rap. Her reputation got bigger and so did a gap. Cause girl, your mama should have taught you better. I'ma sit down and write you a long letter. Dear Yvette, D. 
dear Yvette, dear Yvette, keep on do. For all things Russell Peters, go to www.russellpeters.com. Make sure you follow Russell on Twitter at the real Russell P. And on Facebook and the Gram, you can find him at Russell Peters, guys. I'll be posting his mixtape track listing link as soon as I get it from him. I bet it's going to be hip hop heavy. Maybe some, uh, maybe some like hard rock. But for all things 500, guys, go to the500podcast.com where you can find all the mixtapes, all the artists of the week. Every little thing about the 500 is right there on our goddamn website. Email me, email Jeremiah, email Morty, email fucking Dave, email fucking Pete, Peter, if you want to call him that, because that's what I call him. But email us, guys, and you can do that at the500podcast at gmail.com. And follow me on all social media at Josh Adam Myers. Guys, I'm so close to 10,000. It's a big day for me. Also, uh, Thursday night, this Thursday, guys, I'm doing a shimmy shimmy ya at the... uh, at the Comedy Store at 8 p.m. with Dane Cook and Brian Callen and who else? Who else is on that motherfucker? Oh, Michael Rappaport and uh, Bobby Lee. Oh, it's going to be great, man. Yeah, fuck yeah. Everybody come, dude. Meth Syndicate sponsors it. Go to Meth Syndicate. At Meth Syndicate to buy any merch. All that shit. We have merch coming. Follow my writer at DJ Morty Coyle. And then check out his Instagram page where him and his daughter sing very, very well. Uh, different songs in the history of music and you can find that at B and Daddy Cartoons. Now, we just listened to LL from 1985. Now, here is an artist that is directly influenced by this album. From Charlotte, North Carolina, we have Loot with his song Still Slummin'. And if you're in a band and were directly influenced by one of these albums or artists and you want your music featured on the 500, send us your song. You can send it to 500podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you put the album and the artist that influenced you in the subject line. Next week is Fuji's week with their 1996 hip-hop classic, The Score. So y'all got some homework to do. Thank you, Fleecers. I fucking love you. Stay fleecy all day, all the time. I'm still slumming while I'm chasing life. Took two steps back just to get it right. I'm still slumming while I'm chasing life. Two steps back just to get it right. I'm still slumming while I'm chasing life. Two steps back just to get it right. Took off my work badge. Realize I'm back in the hood. Like, what's good? My cousin called, told me he coming through. Like, yo, what up? Why you back, bruh? See, you should be laying tracks with J. Cole, and who knows, maybe he signed your ass. See, I don't know just how this rap thing go, but from the looks of it, you closer than most niggas that I know, so please explain. Where I see it, bro, you paving lanes. What you don't believe, cause boy, your songs did some things for me. Had me thinking we was trapped, but loot, you set us free. Niggas stay focused when it's right for you, it's meant to be. Every time I play a song, you gain a fan. Nigga, you the man, drop a song, what you waiting on? You in high demand, and that's life. Only one time to get it right, take a flight. View this world from a different height and see this hood still the same. No matter how you view it, you got dreams, I just rather you pursue it. Just promise you never change, I don't care just how you do it. Fuck them niggas, you ain't gotta prove shit. And see this hood still the same, no matter what you doing. So for you, I empty out a whole clip. 
I'm still slumming while I'm chasing life. That's mad, get it right. I'm still slumming while I'm chasing life. Two, two steps back just to get it right. I'm still slumming while I'm chasing life. Two steps back just to get it right. I'm still slumming while I'm chasing life. Two steps back just to get it right. As I let the Chevy skate like Trey wins back in the day. Wishing upon these stars like God show me the way cause ain't no looking back. Been in the trap so long, I'm tired of shooting back. Keep your eyes peeled, don't let the steel hit you. Envy be that bitch that fuck the niggas that chill with you. That's why I can never trust these niggas. Trigger finger itching, contemplating, should I pull it? Lost more friends to bullshit than a bullet. Brother Pooh caught me up, he tell me stay consistent. The fact that you yourself, that's what make you different. Like fuck the gold chains, diamond rings Keep your eyes on the prize that don't make a difference Cause you're still a young king without the bling Keep your eyes on the prize, shine on these niggas I'm still slumming while I'm chasing life That's back to get it right I'm still slumming while I'm chasing life Took two steps back just to get it right I'm still slumming while I'm chasing life Two steps back just to get it right I'm still slumming while I'm chasing life Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Paul Phelps. And this is Monica Strutt. And we're from the Daily Music Business Podcast. We're joined by a number of other really great hosts in creating daily content with great advice for independent musicians just like you. That's right. We put out episodes daily on all topics from music marketing to branding, advice on signing with a manager and label and anything else you need to up-level the business side of your music career. We've got it covered. Subscribe to the Daily Music Business Podcast today on your favorite podcast catcher. Subscribe today to the Daily Music Business Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Next Chapter Podcasts.